Hello again, this is uh, Johannes Kasigawo on uh, Into Perspective, and today's topic is about uh, prisons and society. We're looking at a general definition of a prison. A prison is basically an institution for confinement of people who have been deprived of their liberty following a conviction for a crime. And a society is, can be looked at or can be termed as a, a grouping sharing the same geographical location or territory under the same political authority, you could even say we shared cultural norms and, and, uh, and customs. So today we'll be talking about prisons, and I have with me here uh, Musena Joshua Malcolm. Yes, hello, uh, greetings everyone. Uh, as uh, our host mentioned, my name is uh, Musena Joshua Malcolm. Uh, currently, I'm a third year law student. Uh, I was quite ecstatic to come on board to discuss uh, this topic regarding prisoners' rights because it's one subset of uh, subject and field that I'm very passionate about, and that's under human rights. Uh, my general perception regarding prisoners' rights, uh, I agree with what our kind host mentioned regarding the background and introduction as to prisons. Uh, but I just want to add in uh, one small uh, additional thing, and uh, that is uh, prisons actually stem from, uh, you've heard of the theories regarding punishment, and that is uh, the deterrent effect, the deterrent theory rather, is uh, rehabilitative and uh, retributive. So prisons mainly stem from those key two that I mentioned earlier, and that is uh, regarding deterring crime by incarcerating individuals within the prison. And also, uh, while incarcerating those specific individuals, the, the rehabilitative theory aspect comes in in order to reform these individuals such that they can come out after their time spent in prison better. Another thing I could have forgotten to mention is another theory and rationale behind the whole aspect of prisons is to uh, uh, promote safety and order in society such that there is a theory that by incarcerating and holding these individuals within the prison uh, they could um, they would not be a menace you could say to society and they would be rehabilitative and they would be kept in the prison such that uh, they could actually do good from the time spent there while ensuring the safety of the rest of society. Uh, that, that's all I wanted to add regarding the introduction of prisons. Uh, uh, Johannes, do you want me to, to go ahead with the Q&A? Yes, we, uh, we could. So basically, the first question that we would be looking at is uh, should uh, released prisoners pay back to the state what was spent on them while they were in jail? Uh, all right, much obliged. Thank you for the question. Uh, regarding this aspect, this um, it goes towards the phenomenon that is known as pay-to-stay imprisonment. And uh, regarding this whole scenario, this phenomenon, uh, it is quite controversial. Uh, there are proponents for it, and then uh, the opponents against it. I, for one, am an opponent against it, but I felt that it would be good to give a brief overview regarding arguments on either side. 
So for starters, uh, regarding the whole aspect of uh, the proponent for, the proponent for pay to stay imprisonment, they assert that by you uh, mandating that released prisoners should pay back the state for the time they have spent in jail, they say that it has a punitive aspect which could also uh, link towards the deterrent in that by punishing these individuals, obliging them to pay back for their actions, it would coerce them in the future and bar them uh, from thinking twice, uh, thinking about uh, conducting in further criminal activity, spend uh, another term in jail. Uh, another argument regarding the proponents, uh, they say that uh, it relates to also costs and expenses. Uh, the um, advocates for this that assert and argue that by you obliging prisoners to actually pay the state, it could uh, reduce the requests for uh, frivolous services, they say, by inmates, uh, hoping to reduce a small portion of costs of care. And this argument uh, mainly comes out from, uh, I could use the American aspect. With the American aspect, there are advocates that say that they've come across certain inmates that uh, could come and have unnecessary requests in their time spent in jail saying, for example, they would want a particular uh, service for them, dealt to them, but, uh, Honoring and giving that service ends up, uh, uh, it, it kind of applies pressure, uh, economic pressure and cost to the state regarding honoring and honoring the, that service. Uh, that's an overview regarding the arguments concerning the proponents. Now, uh, the school of thought I like to, towards uh, is the opponent side. I am against. Uh, the whole aspect and phenomenon of the pay-to-stay imprisonment. And uh, these are the arguments I agree with. Uh, they say that uh, this particular phenomenon actually imposes an unnecessary burden on inmates. Uh, and uh, using the Ugandan perspective, I could say uh, most inmates you find uh, that are inside the prison uh, most of them come from uh, an indigenous background. Uh, in terms of financial standing, they are not financially sound. And you find that actually you uh, obliging them to pay back to the state kind of burdens their families more than them in that it will be their families to honor those debts of paying back to the state. And another aspect is that by you uh, imposing debt on these particular individuals that have a weak financial background, uh, trying to pay back that debt, that whole pressure on them, uh, kind of, it has also an aspect of coercing and inducing these individuals into a life of crime again, in that trying to look for that money to pay back to the state might compel them into engaging into acts such as theft, for example, robbery and burglary. And uh, another thing I could also talk about regarding this whole aspect is 
I find that it's kind of too punitive, this whole phenomenon of a pay to stay. I am a proponent of the view that the whole rationale behind prisons is uh, rehabilitative in that by you reforming these individuals, not only are you doing a service to them, but you're doing a service to the whole of society. Because once these individuals are reformed, uh, being law-abiding and responsible citizens in the society, they could do better for the rest of us. In that uh, you find uh, many of these individuals reform and they end up turning their lives around and they end up doing good for society. Uh, there's a litany of narratives you'll find online of specific uh, individuals that went to jail. They came out and they, they did good. Uh, some ended up finishing their education. They ended up becoming lawyers. Uh, you find that on those activities also, it ends up bolstering revenue for the economy. And uh, that's it summarily regarding that question. Unless you have further questions. Yeah, well, uh, ideally also, uh, if you're going to look at it in the sense of numbers, you could say that there are those who came out and turned their life around. And then there are those who also came out and just went back straight to crime. But on the issue of paying, and so for that particular percentage of people who come out and remain unchanged, it comes on to think that a lot of taxpayers' money is spent on these people, keeping them in the, in the prisons because we pay for security in terms of keeping them in and also maybe, you know, because there's personnel that work in the prisons, also pay for the food and we pay for everything through taxpayers' money. So for them to come out and remain unchanged it feels like a a waste of money but also not just to burden as you said most of the people who may result who may who may resort to crime may come from a unstable financial background but paying back for the paying back for the paying back the debt that all like paying back to the society how much they spent or was spent on them during their time in prison doesn't necessarily limit to some form of monetary payment it could also be in the form of work like you have heard of prison labor although also that comes in and brings the question about how maybe prisoners are overworked and underpaid or something like that but in that context of prison labor could also be a means of them trying to pay for their stay in prison to make it easier for or to make it cheaper for the taxpayer what do you think about that Oh, uh, you actually raised a lot of issues uh, in that particular question. But what I could say uh, regarding the whole aspect of you paying, uh, you uh, imposing that burden, I would say that much as, yeah, there is merit in the argument saying that, look, these individuals, uh, they, end up, they, they end up, uh, the reason why they should pay is because, first of all, uh, it's a burden to society. So they should be the ones to pay for their time spent. But as I raised earlier, you find that uh, it kind of has um, an effect in that when you look at it long term, see, uh, these individuals, by you imposing that burden on them, uh, there is a strong likelihood, uh, I could say, in the African perspective, because many of these inmates uh, that actually end up going to jail come from a very weak financial background. So you're actually making them to pay things that they could not afford, and they could end up resorting to dubious things to try to pay back that. 
another aspect I, re I forgot to raise is uh, there is also the whole aspect of uh, that amount of money them paying back to the state uh, in societies where you find rampant corruption. Uh, there's also the question, will that money be put to good use? So why would you even impose that, that burden on the inmates in the first place? Uh, you want me to go on? Yeah, I wanted to move on to the to the next question, as maybe because uh, I, I wanted to talk about uh, uh, prisoners and voting. Yeah, uh, what do you feel about the uh, giving prisoners or prisoners maintaining their right to vote for political, for people in poli for people standing in political positions like the president okay. or a uh, member of parliament or some form of representative. Right, much obliged. Thanks for the question. And uh, regarding this question, I'll approach it twofold. Opinion based, I say prisoners have a right to vote. And now, as a law student, uh, I feel obliged to also give you the legal framework regarding the issue of uh, voting rights of prisoners. And you find, internationally speaking, there is a huge bulk of international instruments that actually agree and say that prisoners have a right to vote. Reason being is that uh, the, the whole issue of voting is a very fundamental aspect and tenant regarding good governance and uh, democracy, uh, values which are internationally uh, valued a lot. They, they, they are treasured and all. So uh, this whole aspect, voting forming a foundation of democracy, the whole action of voting is actually the people uh, participating and exercising their free will to indicate the individuals whom they would uh, they would, uh, would want to rule and govern over them. So uh, regarding the legal framework, uh, I could cite uh, a huge bulk. There is a UDHR, that is a Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's not legally binding per se, but uh, given uh, scrutinizing a lot of uh, national constitutions worldwide, you find uh, in uh, uh, providing for this right to vote, like for example, given the Ugandan perspective. In the Ugandan perspective, our constitution uh, mandates that every citizen 18 years and above has a right to vote. You realize that in that statement alone, it's blanket to even cover prisoners. It does not selectively say that uh, it must be individuals that are not in jail. Uh, all an individual would need is to be 18 years of age, be a Ugandan, and that's it. Do you, think it, is, uh, do you think it's detrimental to allow uh, prisoners to, to vote? Uh, <clears throat> uh, apologies for that. Um, I don't think that it's detrimental for prisoners to vote because uh, regarding the rationale behind denying prisoners the right to vote, I find it to be very flimsy uh, in that most proponents say that the reason why they would deny prisoners the right to vote is on account of their criminal activity. But uh, looking at it logically, we should also give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. There are many individuals that are not in prison cells that you could actually rightly question, uh, freedom of expression aside, 
you'd raise the question, their views, this is a society where we debate. So you'd find that there is one particular individual, there might even be an individual that uh, would not be able, might even have evaded lawful authorities, you could say, hypothetically. And uh, this individual, uh, you, the same arguments you would use to castigate the prisoner would also be for that individual. And recall that this whole thing regarding prisoners, the, re the rehabilitative aspect, uh, these individuals end up reforming, they become better lawful abiding citizens that are responsible. And I believe that it would be a disservice for us to deny them that right to vote. That aside, uh, answering your question, I also find the whole aspect of denying prisoners the right to vote to be discriminatory in that it has a whole aspect of you looking at an individual's social status uh, to use that to deny him or her the right to vote. But we as human beings, we're not perfect. We have multiple flaws. Uh, that prisoner whom you try to deny the right to vote also has the same flaws you as a human being also have. Uh, the beauty of society is that by exercising the right to vote, we can discuss and uh, choose whichever person we find to be most suitable to lead. Yeah, thank you for that. I actually agree with most or if not all of what you have said. And um, I wanted to discuss uh, your views on the death penalty, torture interrogation and corporal punishment of convicted felons. Oh, the death, uh, come again, death penalty, corporal punishment, and uh, solitary confinement. Death, death, death penalty, uh, uh, the corporal, pun uh, corporal punishment of convicted felons, and uh, torture interrogation of suspects. What is your view on that? All right, much obliged. Uh, I'll tackle each one individually, and uh, for starters, I'll start with the death penalty. Yes. Uh, death penalty is a very controversial issue. Uh, not only uh, opinion-wise, but even legally speaking. Uh, legally speaking, internationally, okay, before giving the framework, I would say that um, I feel obliged to, to also uh, raise an overview regarding arguments on either side. Proponents for the death penalty uh, said that it has immense value regarding its whole deterrent aspect. Uh, by you executing individuals, they believe that it would... Uh, uh, discourage potential criminals from, from engaging in uh, criminal activity. Uh, another argument proponents for death that this penalty raised is uh, it's, it has a retributive aspect in that they believe by you executing the individual, uh, you garner retributive justice for uh, the family of the victim. Uh, another argument they would also say is that, oh, yeah, uh, okay, yeah, it ensures that uh, the convicted criminals do not offend, and that's just reaffirming uh, the deterrent value. Uh, now, uh, before going to the other side, uh, I find qualms regarding the whole deterrent aspect because uh, this whole deterrent aspect for the death penalty, no matter how many individuals are executed the fact is murder will still go on 
people commit murder for uh, multiple reasons. I'm just using murder as an example of an offense regarding death penalty. But uh, there are also other offenses that have garnered the death penalty that is rape and aggravated defilement. Uh, but uh, before going further on that particular issue, now opponents against the death penalty, uh, they cite that it is inhuman and uh, they debunk the whole theory regarding its, reputi its retributive aspect, uh, citing an eye for an eye. Uh, they debunk it in that uh, by you trying to garner retributive justice. The fact of the matter is that once you execute this individual, you will not revive them. They won't, you won't revive the victim, rather. Uh, and the families would still fill that void. So much as you try to guise yourself saying that you are trying to do it, seek retributive justice for the family, the fact of the matter is that the victim won't come back. And uh, regarding the whole aspect of its uh, inhumaneness, uh, they also cite the death row phenomenon. And now death row is a whole period between conviction, you being sentenced to death, and you awaiting your execution, the actual death penalty itself uh, taking into effect. Uh, many um, critics say that it is even a form of torture per se uh, regarding mental, the mental aspect psychologically. Uh, the, whole, um, the whole thing of an individual waiting day by day for that fateful day where he or her loses uh, his or her life. Uh, now that's regarding the whole debate, an overview, our uh, proponents and opponents on either side. Legally speaking, as I pointed out earlier, uh, this controversy is also there in that uh, internationally, um, I would cite the foundation, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Uh, that international instrument actually states that uh, it does not bar the death penalty. But it says that the death penalty in itself uh, is not permissible in certain instances, which I wholeheartedly agree with uh, regarding uh, barring, let's say, executing individuals that are, are younger than 18 years of age and also barring the execution of uh, pregnant convicts. Another thing I would like to add regarding the death penalty, much as I've said, internationally it is not agreed, states have uh, the discretion to exercise the death penalty so long as they do not impose it on those particular individuals. But uh, there is a whole fight and struggle towards uh, dealing away with the death penalty entirely, and uh, that was... Um, that resulted into an optional protocol to the ICCPR, which is to that effect. But you can see with, with the word to it's of optional. Uh, states are not obliged to ratify that. And uh, you're looking at the particular countries that have ratified that particular protocol to do away with the death penalty in whole, you'll find that there are majority, there are multiple countries in this world that are yet to ratify that in the no, in North America, there is the US, 
in Africa, you could actually say that the countries that still impose the death penalty outweigh the countries that dealt away with the death penalty. Uh, now, my views as me, Joshua, I am an opponent against the death penalty. And um, for reasons I cited earlier regarding the whole opponent bit, I find it to be inhumane. And I find its retributive argument to actually be filled with so many flaws in that, as I earlier said, uh, doing away with this individual, you will not revive the victim and the families will still fill that void. Um, that's what I would like to talk about regarding the death penalty. Unless you have questions on this particular issue, I would like to proceed to the torture interrogation and uh, corporal punishment. Uh, yeah, uh, not really, not really much to add. Uh, I just want to now know what you think about uh, torture interrogation of suspects and corporal punishment of convicted felons. I find uh, the torture interrogation and corporal punishment summarily, I find these two to actually be linked and they uh, actually form an aspect of torture and I totally disagree with it and uh, regarding the legal aspect of it internationally. Um, prisoners in the standard minimum rules for treatment for prisoners, uh, the Mandela rules, uh, prisoners uh, recognized be human beings that have an inherent value and are entitled to dignity and it uh, specifically bars any form of torture, uh, any form of torture and also corporal punishment regarding uh, these prisoners during their stay uh, in prison. Regarding the solitary confinement aspect, uh, it's actually linked in that those Mandela rules actually uh, specifically bar um, corporal punishment and solitary confinement in certain circumstances. That is, prolonged solitary confinement and indefinite solitary confinement, and it also bars imposing solitary confinement on individuals that have mental health issues whom a medical officer would deem to be unsuitable to be subjected to the whole aspect of uh, solitary confinement. Uh, do you have any questions? No, no, not really. I, I just uh, like how you have uh, given a detail on the issue. And um, I wanted to ask also, much as people say that crime is crime, uh, there are some other f individuals or groups of individuals who have been raising a concern that certain circumstances should not be treated as crime. For example, I believe you termed it as re retributive justice. So we have like a case of someone who maybe kills a pedophile or a rapist who has been caught in the act of uh, in committing, the, uh, committing the crime. And so what, what is your view on this? Should such a person be excused because of the act that they are doing is some form of retribution and to the public eye, some may view it as justified. But what does it mean for society if such a, such a stance was to, was, to take, uh, was to get approved that certain crimes are permissible under certain circumstances and shouldn't be treated as crime? Oh, all right. Much obliged. Um, actually, um, my, my point of view... Uh, Legality aside, 
I agree that there's, you would say that there are certain aspects uh, because looking at an individual, I take cognizant of the fact that there are certain circumstances and situations, an environment imposed on a particular individual might actually uh, compel him or her to commit a crime. And you looking at it legality aside, not looking at the crime on it aside, an individual could actually agree and say that ah, looking at this particular individual in that particular scenario, I empathize with why he or her did that. But legality, legality does not look at that. It does not look at this whole aspect of you saying that uh, by virtue of this, we should actually uh, set aside your crime. Uh, looking at it lawfully, uh, such circumstances are used uh, to be a mitigating factor regarding sentencing. In that, uh, by virtue of the circumstances, uh, this individual commits that crime. Uh, I could give, for example, a, a quick hypothetical scenario. Let's say a particular lady that is about to be raped ends up committing self-defense and uh, in defending herself, rather, defending herself from uh, being raped, she ends up killing this individual and now you go to court. Now going to court, you're raising those issues that you see this guy was, was trying to rape me, that's why I did this. Uh, they, could say they could impose a sentence on manslaughter to this lady and they would look at such circumstances to mitigate uh, the sentence they would impose on her to take cognizance of the whole circumstance. But uh, uh, that's what I would citing on that particular example you gave, I think that is a bit uh, regressive in the sense of self-defense shouldn't really be a crime in that particular. But if I was looking at it from a third-party approach, for example, maybe not the lady being the one to kill the 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 perpetrator, but let's say like a third person was passing by and happened to witness this act and in and in the a struggle to help the lady or to help the victim the perpetrator is is uh, maybe harmed or killed in that case maybe that's where i would say oh maybe the lady the, the the lady was raped and someone else took justice on her behalf by uh, seeking out the the perpetrator and killing them because i don't think self-defense should be a crime or should even be punished at all because that that one is in a way it is justified because it is not like uh the individual instigated the crime but rather was responding to provocation manslaughter in that case would maybe be unintended uh i don't know killing someone in a in a situation that did not necessarily uh have you under immediate harm for example, maybe you got into a fight with a friend and this fight was instigated by the other person and out of anger and provocation, you strike back and then accidentally kill the person. But in the sense of you about to be raped, I think there you are in immediate danger and any form of self-defense that you take might or could easily be justified. But uh, the question that I was directing towards you was in the sense of maybe people becoming vigilante. For example, you see people committing crime and you take it upon yourself to act outside the law to seek some form of justice or retribution. 
for the victims. Oh, but, much obliged. I get, uh, regarding the whole aspect of vigilantes, uh, vigilantes are a total no-go because the whole aspect regarding you burying vigilantes, there is, a, in, there is an immense danger in you placing the law in the hands of specific individuals. By you placing the, the, the law in the hands of a vigilante, that vigilante could impose his or her own justice. He has a wide discretion. Uh, and that could be very dangerous, as opposed to, let's say, a court of law that has recognized and established rules that are predictable and kind of uses those particular and established rules as uh, sort of a compass to reach, uh, to reach its decision. Whereas a vigilante, per se, you, a vigilante is very dangerous in that you'd find with this particular individual, he ends up taking the law in his hands and he does things as he or she pleases. And you might find that particular individual has his or innate biases. You might find particular individuals of a particular, let's say, pigment, people have, who have a particular temperament, people who dress in a certain sort of way. Uh, you see the dangers with you uh, advocating for vigilantism. Yes, yeah, I can see that how it can turn south really fast. That was just uh, what the, the question was addressing. Should certain uh, cases where someone acted vigilante, should they be considered uh, as not crime? Like I had started out, maybe someone seeking revenge on a pedophile or something like that. But yes, if you make room for some sort of compromise, it allows more compromises to be made further along the road which can then go south really fast. So I can see the argument that you put forward. Another question that was uh, meant to be answered was, do you think that uh, prison induces reform or creates further damage of the individual? I think this question is citing the fact that much as you might remove the individual from the society, uh, mainly because you want to prevent this individual from causing further harm, but another important reason as to why you do this is to correct this individual and put them back into society so that they can be a, com a contributing member of society. But essentially what prison does is to get like-minded people together, criminals as they are termed, and put them under the same roof where they interact with each other. And so will they interact with each other towards becoming better or further strengthen their resolve of, of being against the system? Oh, much obliged. Um, now, uh, this is... a. Uh kind of uh, controversial in that it, it has a subjective element. Uh, there are particular people that receive their experiences in prison differently. The individuals that end up reforming for the better, and then there are those individuals that might end up being damaged. Now, uh, the, the main goal to, the, the main thing to uh, deter and prevent the latter is that while reforming these particular individuals in prison, uh, a subjective approach should be taken, uh, particularly noting these individuals' temperaments, uh, also their criminal records, because you'll find uh, placing individuals that have committed a particular crime uh, with individuals that have committed another might also end up uh, exerting a bad influence on other individuals regarding uh, uh, staying together in prison. 
so what I would tell you is that regarding this whole aspect of the prisons in just reform or further damage the individual, uh, it depends on uh, the particular individual, but how, uh, as I said, the other problem of you preventing damage being dealt on an individual is that prison officers should uh, take a subjective approach in dealing with these individuals while reforming them, taking note of their particular temperaments, uh, even their prospects uh, on, on release, because there are stories of individuals that have gone out, have committed crimes, even individuals that commit crimes not out of liking doing it per se, but uh, they perceive prison to be actually a safe home for them compared to the rest of society. So they would gladly commit crime to take themselves back to prison. Thank you for that. And uh, I think the last question of the day was, uh, should it be easy for a, re a released criminal to reintegrate with society? This poses, uh, I think, as one or two things. Mostly when someone goes to prison, it is very hard for them to get their life back on track conventionally. And because you have it written down that you are a convicted felon, uh, most companies, most businesses, most forms of employment do not want to associate with the ex-felons or ex-convicts. Uh, but then, so you find it hard for some a person who's genuinely, genuinely trying to get their life back on track and become an upstanding member of society because they can't get a job or they cannot find somewhere to work. They cannot get a regular legal if, uh, source of income that can help them cater for their needs. But it also has this aspect of allowing certain types of criminals access to public or access to certain resources by making it easy for criminals to reintegrate with society and get their life back on track because for example you have uh, sex offenders you have and you know you are trying to limit their they're trying to limit their their access to people because you do not want them to you do not want to put other members of society in gender so sex offenders must be registered upon release they must undergo a therapy and stuff like that so when you're a sex offender, you must be, let it be known everywhere you're going. If you want to get a job, whether you have reformed or not, you have to let it be known that you're a sex offender. You have, if you want to stay in a particular area, you have to let it be known to the neighborhood. The, 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 your neighborhood should have access to the information that you're a sex offender. So it may make it hard for you to get a place. It may make it hard for you to get a job. And um, the, the, the just, there's justification for that because rightly so, you cannot put other people in danger. They need to know so that information so that they can take it upon themselves to protect themselves, to protect their children and their loved ones. But assuming in the scenario that this person is actually reformed, they cannot do much with their life because of a crime that they committed. And so that leads them to go back into that cycle of crime and try to find, while they're trying to find a means of survival, to make it back in the, in the world outside prison. So what is your saying that should it be easy for criminals to reintegrate? Or should it remain as stringent as it is? I say that it should actually be easy because uh, by you making it hard for criminals, it actually defeats the whole uh, purpose I ascribed to regarding uh, the whole rationale behind imposing an individual in jail is to ensure that they are they reform and uh, they become better citizens. But 
I, I, I take cognizance of the fact that much as idealistically, yes, uh, these criminals' lives should actually be, the released prisoners' lives should actually be allowed to go back easily on track. But uh, re realistically, you find that for these particular individuals, they would also, it would be regarding employment now, for example. No matter how the individual has reformed, as a particular employers also have their innate biases, you'll find an individual, much as they can see, they can see that this particular person has reformed. They might have uh, doubts and skepticism regarding hiring that individual, much as this person has reformed. Uh, what I would suggest. And, uh, and one thing I would recommend uh, regarding, I, I noted that you raised the whole aspect of a sexual offender list registry where they can list uh, people that have committed sexual offenses. Uh, now in that particular scenario, uh, a state should try its level best to try to uh, reach a balance, strike a balance between in ensuring the safety of society regarding these sexual offenders, but also taking cognizance of the fact that these guys could also have reformed and also ensuring that they have a life that will not be discriminatory. I say discriminatory in the sense that by that particular mistake they made regarding going to jail for that particular crime, they end up uh, be, they end up facing the brunt of it much as they are reformed. So I suggest that the state should try to set mechanisms to try to reach that balance. In that, much as you are protecting the rest of society, you try to ensure that this reformed individual is not castigated a lot in society, and he or her can actually live a life that not only benefits him but benefits the rest of the society. Because as I said earlier, rehabilitating these individuals is not only for the benefit of uh, they as individuals, but the rest of society. By this person coming out reformed, they also, um, they, they can be beneficial to the rest of society, is what I can say. Well, that might be true, but you know the old adage goes uh, better, better safe than sorry. And so it is very hard for you to, to neglect the fact that there is some form of risk as much as you might want it to be easy for these individuals to reintegrate and make something of their lives, you also have to be concerned about the element of risk. So I think it comes down to the fact of it being considered by some as a necessary evil or as a, an unavoidable circumstance that you might have to castigate these individuals simply because of the crimes they committed in the past but there should maybe be some kind of avenue for them to find work and some kind of like uh, middle ground in between reintegrating into society and coming out of prison. For example, maybe like some social programs and stuff like that that can keep them occupied and busy as well as maybe making some form of a living for themselves so that they can actually have a good life. Uh, thank you for calling in. I think that concludes most of the... Uh, what we had to discuss today. If you have any closing remarks, uh, feel free to to do so. Thank you. Oh, okay, much obliged. Uh, thank you for this 
not only was it, uh, it was also an insightful discussion for me, uh, hearing out also uh, other perspectives, and it also gave me a line of sight that I might not have had uh, initially. And I'm very grateful and honored to have been given this uh, opportunity uh, to serve as a discussant uh, regarding this particular topic. Uh, regarding uh, any remarks that I would have had, uh, I don't think I would have any, minus maybe uh, the whole aspect of uh, regarding uh, torture. Uh, I forgot to also shed light on the whole aspect regarding prison searches. Uh, you mentioned corporal punishment, but another facet of torture within uh, prison life could also be uh, uh, subjecting a prisoner to inhuman uh, body searches for uh, uh, very flimsical uh, reasons. Uh, you'd find a particular intendant being racist, for example, or even uh, scenarios of uh, sexual violence, female prisoners, and uh, the like, and so on. Uh, uh, maybe that. And also uh, regarding the whole aspect of COVID in relation to prisoner rights, there is also that issue. I came across a narrative of escapees, uh, prisoners that escaped because they felt that by staying in jail, they felt that they were at a risk of uh, acquiring COVID. Uh, maybe that's what I could say. Okay, thank you once again for calling in. And it has been a great discussion with you. Uh, this is Into Perspective. Until next time. All right. Uh, thank you very much.